Well, good morning. Um, it is great to be home. Our family uh, was all in Oklahoma last week celebrating Christmas with all of our kids and all of our grandchildren. And um, there's no place like home, even when it's negative 82 million degrees here. Um, <laughs> we went to church with our family last week um, in Oklahoma, and we heard, you know, we heard a great message. And we were able to worship God through song, and we participated in communion and got to know people um, in the church there in Clinton, Oklahoma. And we loved being there, and it was not this place. Like, I believe that, that there is a universal church, capital C. And I believe that the church there in Oklahoma, they're, they're my brothers and sisters, they're your brothers and sisters, but there's something different about being, being at home in your home church that, that really makes a difference, um, which is sort of what we're going to be talking about today. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it to Acts chapter 242. Um, you notice we did this uh, starting a few weeks ago. For the month of January, we're going to be utilizing Uversion quite a bit on Sunday mornings again. Uh, if you have that app on your phone, it's just a great way to, to develop a rhythm of being in scripture. And we're going to talk more about that here in a couple minutes, but we're going to be, we're going to have all of our scriptures that we read uh, throughout the month of January up on the screen, but still we want you to follow along in your Bibles. If you use the YouVersion app, there are a lot of great things in there that we have, we've put in there uh, for you, and I'll show you that here, uh, here in a second. Um, so the past five or six weeks or so, I've been learning a lot about building foundations, uh, why they matter to the building, why they last, and more importantly, why they don't last. What the difference is between a foundation that lasts and a foundation that doesn't. And in all of my research, it led me to two, uh, two architectural case studies on homes that survived a hurricane. Um, we've got a few pictures. The first one, uh, first house is called the Little Yellow House, and it's in Gilchrist, Texas. Um, Hurricane Rita in 2005 damaged the beach home of Warren and Pam Adams, and they decided to rebuild their house to new housing standards. But not just to uh, whatever the minimum was, they went above and beyond what those housing standards were. And three years later, when Hurricane Ike hit, uh, the home had some roof and some siding damage, but structurally it was sound. Its foundation was firm. You can see that's the only house on this peninsula that survived this hurricane. The second home is called the Sand Palace, and it's in Mexico Beach, Florida. This was a new build, and they believed that building codes were inadequate and only, um, only represented minimum standards. The owners said as they were building this house, the survivability of a building in a major hurricane, you might call it the big one, was our primary concern and the driver behind all of our decisions. So this... Um, is post-hurricane. They used a concrete base of pre-stressed piles down into the ground to the bedrock. Pre-stressed is key there. And they poured seven-inch thick concrete walls, which would withstand 235 to 240 mile-per-hour winds. When Hurricane Michael made landfall in 2018, they had some water damage because a door had been installed incorrectly. But other than that, the structure itself was sound. We have to ask the question, and that was what led me to these things. What, what set these homes apart from other homes in the area? 
Why were those homes able to withstand these hurricanes when other homes weren't? And it's really simple. The foundations were solid. The owners of these homes took seriously the realities of where they lived and they built accordingly. But they didn't just, they didn't just meet the minimum standards. They saw what those requirements were and they built their homes to exceed them. And obviously this cost more. In fact, the, the second home, the Sand Palace that I told you about, um, in order to build a home like that, it's like 50 to, 50 to 60% more in cost to build the home. But it withstands the storm. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is what we, we Christians often call the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus gathers people and he tells them of the realities of God's kingdom. And at the end of this sermon in Matthew chapter 7, 24 to 27, again, this is going to be on the screen. This is what Jesus says. He says, anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise. Like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against the house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. For those of you who've been around for the past several years, you know that we spend our January uh, just reminding one another as a church body of, of who we are. It's kind of our vision series. We reorient ourselves around what are the most important things as we look forward into the coming year. Like what, what do we need to be about as a church? What is God calling us to be about as a church? And this year, we, we called this series Foundations, and we're going to talk about four things over the next, coming, over the next several weeks. There's actually a, a half uh, sheet when you came in today that lists all of the verses we're going to be talking about. One of the things I just so want to encourage you to do is read those verses before you come in on a Sunday morning. This is part of your discipleship. We're going to be talking about the devoted gathering. That's today. Next week, we're going to be talking about generous living. The week after, we're going to talk about spirit-enabled and empowered serving. And then lastly, we're going to talk about disciple-making going. So as we think about the things that we want to be oriented around for the year, as we go through the Gospel of Mark at the end of January through the next several months, and then we kind of break for Easter and we, we, we talk about, we're going to have a series called The Songs They Sang and The Songs We Sing. We're going to talk about why do we sing the, the songs that we sing on a Sunday morning? Where do they come from? Why do they matter? We're going to talk about the book of Jonah. Where's Jesus in the book of Jonah? And then at the end of the year, we're going to go through the book of Romans. But all of those things that we're going to be doing this year are going to be oriented around these four foundations for us. So our first foundation is the devoted gathering. This is Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 42. Here's the context for this. It's Jerusalem, and it's 50 days after the Passover. Sorry, I gave them a cue that, that, that they weren't ready for. Um, it's Jerusalem. It's 50 days after the Passover. It's 50 days after the death of Christ, and it's 47 days after he was resurrected, and about a week after Jesus ascended to heaven. 
All of the believers, it says in Acts chapter two, were gathered together in one space. Kind of think that's like 120 people. Just imagine that for a moment. Like every Christian in the entire world was gathered in one space, 120. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit comes upon those people and there's little tongues of fire over their heads and they start speaking all of these different languages of all the people that are gathered and they go outside and, and they start sharing the gospel and the people who are there for Pentecost who are celebrating this from all over the world can't understand why, why these people are talking in their own language. It's a very, very strange scene. And they ask the disciples what's going on and Peter stands up and he gives a sermon and the end of that sermon is he's, he's walking them through the entire Old Testament, talking about the promised Messiah. That's why we spent our time last month talking about these prophecies. He walks them through all of these Old Testament scriptures. And he talks about how they found their fulfillment in Jesus as the Messiah. And then he says this crazy phrase. He says, and this Jesus whom you killed... And I think it's the NIV says they were cut to the heart because they, they recognized that the person that they had placed all of their hopes and dreams in, that they were looking, looking forward to for their entire lives, had been there among them and they killed him. They didn't worship him, they killed him. And they said, brothers, what should we do? And Peter says, well, repent of your sin be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. And they did. And at the end of Acts chapter two, verse 41, it says 3,000 people believed and they were baptized and they were added to the church. This is verse 42. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. I don't want you to miss what's going on here. Don't, don't, don't see that little heading in your Bible and think that there was like this massive amount of time that took place between the end of verse 41 and the beginning of verse 42. See, what Luke is doing here is he's making it very clear the connection between a personal decision for Jesus Christ and the devoted gathering of the Christian community. He's making that crystal clear. Like all of, all of these people didn't just go home after that day and, and watch sermons on YouTube. They didn't have YouTube. But, but they, they didn't just go home and, and, and re, re, resort to this individualized Christianity. See, there weren't any other podcasts of preachers that they could listen to. There was no satellite television. There were no sermon notes on YouVersion. There was no weekly email. All these people had, all they had, the Holy Spirit and one another. That's all they had. They just had themselves. And these, it says the, all the believers devoted themselves. I want you to know that in Greek, that's an, that's an active thing. It says they were devoting themselves. It was a present tense verb. It wasn't just something that, that they did occasionally. It wasn't just something they did when they had nothing better to do as Christians. They were devoting themselves 
to a number of different things. They were devoting themselves, and I, I love that phrase. I, I wish I would have thought more about this yesterday, devoting themselves. This morning when I was reading the version plan that I know many of you are engaged in right now online, talks about, talks about devoting themselves. Like they devoted themselves. They didn't require someone else to motivate them to gather. See the difference? They made the decision to devote themselves to four things. To the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to instruction. They were devoted to doctrine. When they gathered together, they were devoting themselves to the teaching that they were hearing. They were committed to it. They were devoted to it. But it wasn't just anyone's teaching, it was the apostles' teaching. They were developed, they were devoted to the fellowship. Greek word, koinonia, you've probably heard that before if you've been in church for more than a second and a half. Here's not what fellowship means. Fellowship does not mean on Hochoku Sunday, you go out in the lobby and you have hot chocolate and you eat a cookie and then you leave. That's not fellowship. Fellowship means participation. See, as, as Christians, sometimes we hear that word fellowship and we, we think it means something much less than it actually is. But this is participation. They were devoted to participation. They were devoted to meals. The Greek literally means the breaking of bread. They were devoted to meals together. They were devoted to it. Not just every once in a while, not just occasionally. It was something that they were devoted to. And lastly, they were devoted to prayer. These four markers for the early church were crucial in what was taking place. And don't lose sight of the fact that they were devoted to it. This wasn't, this was not a case of half-hearted participation of half-hearted showing up. This was devotion. And see, all of this was done in community because the only mechanism they had for discipleship was community. That's all they had. There were no other avenues. There were no other mechanisms for them to be discipled. They didn't go home and have 14 Bibles in their house like we all do. They had to gather. And I, I know what era we live in. I know that we are not them. See, we have access to the entirety of the Bible 24-7. Don't like what I said about the book of Revelation? Guess what? You can hop online and you can type what you believe about devotion, about Revelation, and you'll find a pastor that agrees with you. Like, that's the, that's the wonderful thing about 2021. 2022, thank you, whoever just said that. Right? See, we have, we have unfettered access to all of these different discipleship methodologies. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is this. Has the unfettered access to all of this wisdom and knowledge and pastors and teaching has it led to your transformation? See, that's what matters. 
all of the things that we can fill our time with when it comes to reading and studying the Bible, and you should do that. We're using version. I'm not saying anything necessarily bad about that, but the question has to be asked. All of this access, all of this time that, that maybe we spend listening to Christian podcasts and watching Christian videos, are you kinder? Are you more loving? Are you more sympathetic? Are you more empathetic? Is it easier for you to identify with someone who is different than you? Who votes different than you? Who sins differently than you? See, at some point, we have to ask ourselves these questions of all of the things that we pursue and all the things that we read and all of the things that we take in and all of the things that we consume as Christians. And we have to ask, is it making a difference in our lives? And again, I, I love the Bible Project. They just came out with an app yesterday. Like, I'm so excited to be able to have more, because I don't just have one Bible app on my phone. Now I've got like 12. So I'm in that same space, right? But we have to ask ourselves, is it making a difference? These tools can help us grow. But what I want you, I want you to know, I want you to hear clearly, is these tools are not substitutes for the gathering. They're not replacements for the gathering. I think if anything, all of these tools do, if we're not careful, is they allow our wisdom to outpace our obedience. So we can hear all sorts of things that we can read, and we can study, and we can learn. But is our wisdom outpacing our obedience? Here's Acts 2, 43-47. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. Each day? They met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and they shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. See, the gathering did something for them that all of our technology can never do. It made them a community. Don't read this and think they're living out some sort of socialist utopia. See, it was their love of God that caused them to love one another. And it wasn't all rosy. It wasn't pretty. Like if we just stopped right here at verses 43 to 47, we'd be like, man, it would have been so awesome to be in that church at that time. And if that's your thought, if that's your mindset, I would encourage you to read through the rest of the New Testament. And what you're going to see is letter upon letter to all of these different churches that are filled with instructions, that are filled with admonitions for them to love God and to love one another. And Peter and Paul and John and James and the author of Hebrews, they weren't, they were, they weren't telling them those things because they were doing them. 
They were chastising them. They were warning them. They were instructing them because they weren't. Life was not rosy. See, they weren't told to ignore their differences. They were told to love one another despite their differences, through their differences. Why? Because the early church understood something, that there was more at stake in the world than what separated them. There was more at stake than than whatever little thing that they had that separated them. They had a mission. They had a purpose as a church. We're gonna talk more about that at the end of the month. And one of the things they also had is they were led and guided by men who clearly understood their roles as leaders. Clearly understood. Let's go to Ephesians chapter four. Again, if you're in new version, you can just follow along with all of this. So remember, they're the gathering. This is verses 12 through 16. Their responsibility is talking about the leaders of the church. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every new wind of teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we'll speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. So they're doing all this in the gathering. It's important for us to remember that. The leaders at the church at Ephesus didn't fire up a Facebook Live video and send it out to everyone and say, hey, we have something we need to talk about as a church. Log on at 11 a.m. on Tuesday morning and watch this video. They had to gather together. They gathered and when they did, there were, there were three desired and expected outcomes. And we see them in this text. There's accountability, there's unity, and there's maturity. Let's listen to verse 12 again. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. See, this is why we talk about serving. This is why we talk about serving all the time. It's my job, according to Ephesians chapter four. It's Cody's job, it's Zane's job, it's Joe's job, it's our elder's job, it's the jobs of all of our ministry team leaders. We are to talk to you about serving. That word responsibility, I I looked that up in the Greek and it means bring to a condition of fitness Think about that one for a minute. It's January 2nd. We're all thinking about it, right? Being in a better condition of fitness. I think the reality is that that many of us are simply out of shape. 
We eat all of the wrong things. I'm not talking about food. See, their spiritual responsibility was to bring the body into fitness. And I think for many of us, we eat all the wrong things. Our diet, our intake, is the 24-7 news cycle of chaos, death, deceit, and destruction. Or what we do is we subsist on feel-good verses and heart warmers. I think for some of us, the only time we get any spiritual exercise is Sunday mornings from 1024 to 1119. See, there is accountability in the gathering. The church leaders here at Westway Christian Church, like, we are responsible for you. We are accountable to God for you, and we are accountable to you. If you feel like we are not bringing you to a condition of fitness, as the church, it is your responsibility to come and speak to us about that, to tell us how we can help you become better fit. But here's the thing, don't don't complain because we're asking you to work. Don't complain because we're asking you to take your responsibility as Christians seriously. I saw this quote earlier this week, this example. Like when Ann tells me my breath is bad, I don't get mad at her nose. I go and I brush my teeth. And I think what some of us need to hear is, you are not spiritually healthy. You are not spiritually fit. Don't be upset with us because we ask you to participate. Our job is to make you fit. Here's the second desired outcome of the gathering. This is from verse 13. And it's just the first part. This will continue the leaders putting you to work until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son. The second thing is unity. That's the second desired outcome of the gathering. The first one is accountability. The second one is unity. It's what Jesus prayed for in John 17 through 17, 20 to 24. It'll be on the screen. Follow along. It says, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. Jesus, get this, Jesus is praying for you. Do you see that in the text? That's what that means. For all who will ever believe in me through their message. See, we didn't hear the gospel just outside of a context. The disciples heard the gospel. They told other people, and they told other people. It's kind of like that one shampoo commercial, and they'll tell two friends, and they'll tell two friends, and so on, and so on, and so on. And what you have 2,000 years later is 120 people over 2,000 years becoming billions. Jesus is praying for us. What does he pray? Verse 21, I pray that they will all be one just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I've given them the glory you gave me so they will be one as we are one. 
I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory you gave me because you love me even before the world began. Why does unity matter? Because it demonstrates to the world the reality of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Well, how does it do that? When I look at people in this room, there are lots of things that we have disagreements on. Right? We, we don't all do this. Like, some of you are Nebraska fans. Some of us are not Nebraska fans. And guess what? We can come into this space. We can be gathered and we can worship Jesus together. We can set that aside, like even if it's just for an hour and a half on Sunday mornings or in small group or Bible study, wherever it is we gather. Like we can set all those things aside. And to, and to the world that is so focused on division right now, I talked about that news cycle. I don't care what news channel you watch. You should know that they're, it's the same coin. They're both, they're both selling you the same message of division. And the world ought to be able to look at our gathering and be curious that we can get together for an hour and a half and worship Jesus together. That's what it says. It demonstrates to the world the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It makes a difference in our lives, in the way that we interact with people who are not like us. And unity is not uniformity. We've talked about that before. Unity is not uniformity. You all do not have to be Ohio State fans. Like, I wish you were. It'd be better for you. Someday. But unity is not uniformity. Unity is not uniformity. I was listening to this podcast. I've talked about it before. It's called Hardcore History. Recently listened to a 28-hour podcast about the war in the Pacific during World War II. I don't know if you knew this, but prior to World War II, um, there was no Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, maybe you don't know what that means. Um, in our military right now, since World War II, we have something called the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And that's like where the highest ranking officer in each of the four services, five services get together, right? And they all work together. Well, that wasn't like that prior to World War II. Can you imagine going into World War II and not having a unified military? This is from that podcast. He says, you had to force these services which were not prepared to work together to work together. And in doing so, of course, that would expose all of the frictions, all of the prejudices, all of the biases, the parochialism that was natural for leaders who'd grown up in, grown up in siloed kinds of organizations. See, this is our story. Before we encountered Jesus Christ, we were not prepared to work together. We were not prepared to work together. And when we do get together, 
Put all of us in a room together and all of the frictions and all of our prejudices and all of our biases are exposed and challenged. That's why churches split over the color of carpet. That's why churches split over the location of the communion table. That's why churches split and why people get mad when, when, when there's music playing during, during communion or when there's music not playing during communion. Because all of these frictions come up. When you put, when you put 200 people together in a room and you ask them to all do the same thing, you know that no one wants to do that, right? And that's the beauty of the gospel. Here's Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Again, on the screen in version. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by, their, by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope, but now you've been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you've been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us, He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who are far away from him and peace to the Jews who are near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You're citizens along with all of God's holy people. You're members of God's family. Together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made a part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. See, that's what unity looks like. People who have nothing in common, completely separate, being joined not through hard work, not through effort, not through our cultural understanding of tolerance, but by the work of Jesus Christ. So there's accountability, there's unity, and here's the third one. Again, we're gonna go back to Ephesians 4, verse 13. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we'll be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Did you catch that? Not everyone like me 
And many of you are like, thank you, Lord. Not everyone like you. I'm not your standard. You're not my standard. What we learn when we read the Bible is that Jesus is our standard. Our goal is for, not, for us to not all be the same. Our goal is not to have everyone voting like you do or thinking like you do or having the same acceptable sins that you have convinced yourself it's okay that you have. Our goal is to measure up to Jesus Christ. That's who we are called. That's what maturity looks like. Let's go back to these verses. Verse 14, Ephesians 4. Then we'll no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we'll speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of the body of the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Did you notice how Paul defines maturity? Speaking the truth in love, growing to be more like Christ, and being fit together in him. And as we do our work, the other parts grow and the whole body's healthy. See, you're not mature because you read your Bible every day. It helps. It's a good thing to strive for. But that doesn't make you mature. You're not mature. I'm not mature because you come to church every week, although we're called to gather. We are not mature or maturing because you are baptized at camp. That's not what makes us mature. See, according to this text, what Paul is telling the church at Ephesus, you are maturing when you act in faith, when you speak in love, when you grow to be more like Christ, and when you work. So if we circle all the way back to the, uh, way back to the beginning, think of all of the ways that we access the Bible, all of the content that we have, maybe that we take in, Is it leading us to speak in love, grow to be more like Christ, or to work? Warren Wearsby says this, not everyone who grows old grows up. There's a difference between age and maturity. Just because a Christian has been saved for 10 or 20 years does not mean that he or she is mature in the Lord. Mature Christians are happy Christians, useful Christians, Christians who help to encourage others and to build their local church. So we have to ask, are, are we happy Christians? Are we useful Christians? Are we helping to encourage other Christians? Are you building this body? Bringing people to a condition of fitness is hard work. I don't know about you. I don't know how much weight you've put on in the last six weeks. 
but I was just talking to someone before today. It feels like beginning in like mid-November, like all I do is eat until December 31st. Anyone else? Like that's your reality? By the end of December, you're like, I don't, I know I'm supposed to eat because I need something for my body, but like you just don't want to have any more food. See, it's, it's time for us to get back to healthy disciplines and healthy rhythms. I'm almost done talking about the last two years and the difficulty that our culture has been through. You're going to get that another few weeks. But it's time. It's time for me to get back to healthy rhythms and disciplines after taking the last six weeks off. And it's time for you to do that too. See, I want to encourage you to not go in to 2022 kicking and screaming. Do not go into this year fighting what God is calling you to do. Don't press against what God has for you. What God has for you is to gather and to find accountability, to find unity, and to find maturity. This is for your own good. This is for your own health, your own spiritual health. And this is not just about what happens here on a Sunday morning. It's not just about the 1015. When we talk about gathering, we talk about Bible studies and small groups and serving on teams, coming early, staying late. There's a women's prayer event at the end of this month. We're not doing these things to fill your calendar. We're doing these things to help you feel healthy, to help you get healthy, to transform you through the work of the Holy Spirit in your lives, to partner with God in what he's doing, to put you in a position of fitness, to give you a firm foundation. Literally, you should know, literally nothing changed over the last two days. I know we all think, right, new year, new you. As I've been pondering that phrase, there will be nothing that's new about this year until there's something new about you. Until you decide. Until you decide that you want to be healthy. That you want to be about the things that God is about. Will you pray with me? And then we're going to do something else here. So let's pray. God, I'm thankful for the gathering. I'm thankful for each person in this room who provides me accountability, who demonstrates unity week in and week out. I love walking into this space on Sunday morning knowing that there is diversity of thought and diversity of understanding and diversity of belief I love it. I also love the way that this church body matures me into Christ. I pray, God, that we would see these things are, are not bad. I would see, God, that we, that we would, see, I would pray that we would see these as things that you are not calling us to do that no one else has ever done in history. You're calling us to be the body of Christ.
And I ask, God, that you would just work. That we would be devoted to the gathering. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.